Welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Vincent Green. I'm your host, Noel John Tui. And this is MDK Presents Mark Scheffler. Hey, Mark, you're back with us. Tell the folks who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Mark Scheffler. And uh, uh, when I was here before, I, I uh, uh, told you that I worked for my wife. <laughs> and I'm, I'm proud to report that I didn't get fired in the interim. <laughs> and, and, but the probation that, period. Uh, well, I'm on a week-to-week option with her. <laughs> Every, every Sunday night, she reviews the previous week and uh, she says, am I picking this guy's option up or what? But I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I have a good track record, so I keep getting it picked up. And, uh, so, you know. It's the I'm danger sure. of Latina women. <laughs> oh, you remembered, huh? Yeah. <laughs> at my feet or at my throat and not enough time in between. <laughs> <laughs> so like mark uh, what have you been doing since last time we were talking to being busy you said you were working on a tv show the last time the seven years yeah um, um, um i've turned it into a book oh really I've decided cool. well I, because i want to tell the real story you know like in in a way that i've never told a story before and i've never written a book before cool so thing. what i've done is I, I took the script that that i had and the notes that i had and um i laid it out in in narrative form and I'm about 80 pages into uh, the first year of those seven years. And I, I uh, have a target date. I'm going, my wife and I are going to Columbia for 10 weeks in June. Nice. So I plan on having it, a draft of the book done by the time I get back. Awesome. I'll work on it. So you're going, what you're doing is you're using the original script as an outline for the novels. No, not as an outline. Not as an outline. I'm using the original, my, my, that script and my notes and my other writings on the series as an, as an outline. And, um, but that particular script uh, uh, is in the fourth year or third year of those seven years. Right. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going back and writing it in a way that if I was doing the series, I would be doing a lot of flashbacks and other things, you know, yeah. to, to catch people up on the history of the characters. This way, I'm just writing the history of the characters in narrative form. Yeah, and you can just, you can kind of, with this thing with novel, and you can kind of break away and you can have one chapter focus on one specific moment or something like that, couldn't you? Like, yeah, that's what, well, it's all, it, the, the, the first sentence of the book, it introduces the main character at, at, um, on the day when he realizes that life is a series of momentous occasions, right? So yeah. I just keep creating and momentous occasions that, propel the, the the initial promise of the narrative i yes. just create every chapter everything that you that i'm writing is about a momentous occasion in this character it's not it, it's obviously fictionalized yeah. in this character's life and it's how he gets from one point to another and yeah. to the end which is the the fantasy coming true so you know uh, and what did, did you go fictionalize with it because it gave you more leeway in terms of the narrative yeah Mm. Yeah, I fictionalize it because I could, you know, could write it as uh, as a novel and not have to think of it, even though the the pillars and and underlying uh, uh, story structure is related to my life. And and a lot of the things it gives me much more freedom to, you know, uh, schmaltz it up a bit whenever I feel like it. But the, the everything that that I'm that's in the book, all the facts that, that are clearly facts and, and episodes actually happened, which is why I think it's worth writing about. I mean, who whose father hires the fucking three studios to like, <laughs> How do you not write about 
the person who had that happen, right? Yeah, uh, actually, that was an yeah. awesome story. Just <laughs> the fact that this is the first time you're writing a book, but you're no stranger to writing. So have you found oh, yeah. this to be quite an organic process? It wasn't too much well, of a stretch to kind of lift it across. It was I'm, a skill set that you had dabbled with many times. My skill set has taught me over the years to uh, um, outline everything first, right? Whether whether you know, and do it in, in broad enough strokes that. Uh, I, I give myself the freedom to move around within each little segment. So since this book, the, the, the story is uh, about a promise and a deal that a father and son made at a certain point, And then the realization of that thing, you know, when my dad and I about la starring in a movie and then last house, then, you know, th that's, a, those are, those are plot anchors. You know, those are things that plant in the ground. And they allow me to, you know, Three Stooges uh, birthday party. That's a that's a plant in the ground, right? So it gives me, if I lay enough of those out, mm. uh, I, I have a very clear path. Not mark events. Yeah, I have a very clear path. Me working at the Copacabana with London Lee in 1971. That's a fact. That's a that's that's a hammered in plot fact, right? Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm going back and. Through, through introducing characters, I'm weaving all the stuff in between that, right? And how we get there yeah. And, yeah. and how it happens. You know, like um, I, went, I went to live with my father. My parents were divorced when I was five. I went to live with my father uh, uh, when I was eight because my mother had remarried uh, uh, an ophthalmologist and he moved, wanted to move his practice to Louisiana. My mother didn't really like me that much. So she didn't want me to, she, she didn't want me to move with her. She wanted to just take my little sister and go and her new child, my, my brother, Bobby and go. And uh, my mother like went into a court in Allegheny County uh, uh, in, in Pittsburgh and they had the most unique kind of custody here. Because usually his parents like trying yeah, fighting for the kid. Yeah. <laughs> like, you this can year, have my mother, my mother was fighting to give me up, right? <laughs> she, she told the judge that you know he disrupts my house, he doesn't listen. She, he's you know, a she, child, she, also you know, very different. So you're describing a child. <laughs> he's describing a normal eight-year-old kid, right? Yeah. <laughs> All he cares about are the three stooges. He never listens to me. <laughs> you know, he's messy. And, and so my father was sitting there and the judge, from what I re recall being told, the judge found, you know, my mother's lawyer to be like completely incredulous. He basically, what you're saying was like the, the normal eight-year-old kid. So the judge said something to my mother, like, well, what are we doing with this kid? You know, where's he going? <laughs> what, what, what do you want to do with him? <laughs> and remember the time, this is 1957, it's not today. So my mother said, pointed to my father and said, let him pay for a military school. That's where the kid belongs. He needs discipline, <laughs> he needs structure. Oh my God. Let his old man pay for And my father said, no, I'll take him. <laughs> I'll, 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 what do you mean? You don't want him? I'll take him. <laughs> and and uh, uh, the judge, again, from what I've been told, and this is actual fact, said to my father, you know, I appreciate your sentiment. You know, I'd probably be saying the same thing, but we've never awarded custody to a single male parent where the yeah, mother was alive I was about to say or, it not, or not in jail, right? <laughs> so weird, yeah. especially so, back then. Right, right. 
so so um, uh, my father said, you know, uh, well, I guess the worst place for anyone to be is where they aren't wanted. And mm. the best place for them to be is where they are wanted. And I want my son. Yes. You know, some words like that. Right. Mm. And the judge yeah. took a flyer. He said, well, it's not statutory. You know, there's no law against it, but prohibiting it. It's just the way things are done. But mm. OK, so literally this, this was like in the morning mm. and I got home from school uh, uh, living with my mother in a house. And her father, I'll tell you about my grandfather in a second. Uh, um, her father hated my father, right? Yeah. My father. Yeah. So um, she bought, he bought my mother this house right after she divorced my father. And so I lived there with my sister and my mother's brand new husband, the doctor and who moved in and my, the housekeeper that we had had for years, this African-American woman, Mrs. King, who was basically Mike Tyson with tits. <laughs> is this the title of the episode right there? That is the title <laughs> of the episode right there. Okay. So, so I, you know, I come home and I, I run home from school to watch the three stooges and I go in and I drop my lunchbox and I run up the steps and I change my clothes. And I hear Mrs. King screaming for me that my mother needs to talk to me. She and doctor, the doctor are on their way back. Uh, I don't know where from where, uh, but that wherever they were, uh, something important happened because they, they got to talk to me. So they get back. I'm trying to, to, to describe the scene. They get back and they call me into the living room. And it's my mother, her, her husband, who I always got along with. He turned out to be a really nice guy. But he was this doctor type. And he'd sit back and, you know, bark and lounge your chair and just smoke a pipe. That was his contribution. To it was healthy back then. It was healthy back then, right. Because he's a doctor. He's doing it, right? So, so um, my mother tells me that um, they're, all, they're moving to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Which, you know, was kind of a curveball, but I, I, I chose, I guess, in the moment to not poke the bear. I said, oh, great, great. That's, uh, that could be fun. You know, like new friends, new school, new stuff. Yeah, it could be You fun. were living in Pittsburgh at the stage, was it? I'm in Pittsburgh, right. Yeah. So my mother said to me, no, we're moving. <laughs> How did that strike you? <laughs> yeah, I... I, I kind of like, like that. Right? <laughs> I, I said, so what, 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 what am I doing? I'm, she said, you're staying here. I said, here in the house with Mrs. King. <laughs> and my mother looks at her husband and says, you know, if I wasn't in the room, I'd swear I never gave birth to this kid. <laughs> I love that. Well, right. So, so anyway, she says, no, you're going to live with your father. <laughs> and okay everything got really better like real fast right yeah. and 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 then i said to mrs king wow that's pretty weird and mrs king says you ain't heard weird yet <laughs> <laughs> my mother looks at me off of that and she says now go upstairs and pack you're leaving tonight <laughs> oh my god <laughs> jesus i said what are you talking about I said, can I have dinner, Sheila? Eat with your father. Get going. <laughs> you so, oh my God. So, so, so. Was she a strict woman, your mother? Or was she just that? No, her? she just didn't like me at that time. Right? So, no, great. No, she, was a, she was a party for most people. Yeah. You know, 
so so um she i went upstairs with and i packed it took everything my lunchbox my roberto clemeni stuff my pirate stuff my you know all all my shit and it was interesting i was eight years old so everything i owned in the world my entire universe fit in a fucking little duffel bag like so, you're like uh, uh bill bixby and, uh, yeah incredible. yeah so so as we're walking down the stairs inside the house mrs king looks at me and she says you know you're better off right yeah <laughs> i said yeah i guess so so my father came and he picked me up now let me tell you about my grandfather this is you know there's all everybody is always all these are characters from this book right yeah my grandfather uh uh in pittsburgh was a a, a russian immigrant who came to the united states uh early on in the uh, 20th century And he was from a little village in Russia uh, and, and was told to go to Pittsburgh and hook up with a guy named Rev Jacobson. And he has, it's going to sound like Fiddler on the Roof, but he, he has five daughters, pick one and marry her. And they made a deal. It was like a thing. So my grandfather, instead of coming directly to Pittsburgh, went to the Bronx in New York and became a house painter, saved up some money, then came to Pittsburgh and He found uh, my great-grandfather, Rev Jacobson, picked my grandmother, who was the youngest, 14 years old at the time, but not because she was the youngest and the prettiest. He picked my grandmother because she was a math whiz and she spoke like 12 languages fluently. All those Slavic, Eastern European languages. She spoke them fluently. My grandfather- Polly, Polly Goth or something like that. I'm trying yeah, to think of the word, yeah. He was my my grandfather was was as much looking for a partner as he was for a wife, a business partner. Yeah, and because he had plans. So anyway, he saves his money, buys some property, uh, buys a couple of apartment buildings, uh, buys uh, uh, a store, sets up. So he the, the U.S. steel plant where all the immigrants were was was in a place called Homestead, Pennsylvania, which is where he lives. And. Uh, uh, all of the two steel plants, the, the big steel plants were along the Monongahela River, okay, uh, so that they could transport uh, uh, resources and finished product on barges up and down the river that connected to the Ohio River, which is a main tributary of the Mississippi. So it was pretty much like a highway. You're like, you're like right on a super highway ready to ship your stuff. Yeah. So my grandfather had a bunch of... Uh, Uh, apartment buildings in, in some unique places. So World War II breaks out and uh, U.S. steel manufacturing, because of the war effort, decides that they're going to connect one plant along the river they have here and one plant along the river that they have here. But in between uh, uh, are some apartment houses owned by my grandfather. Yeah. So the family legend is that U.S. steel basically backed up a cash truck and, and gave it to him because my grandfather was one of these guys who had a lot of fucking money, but he wore, he, he drove, drove an old car, a beat up car. He wore shitty clothes. Like you'd never look at this guy and know that, you know, he's got seven figures in the bank, right? U.S. So, is it frugal or did he just not have oh, any? Unbelievable. Guy used to buy like used bananas. He'd bring them home to my grandmother and she'd throw them in his face. Wasn't um, U.S. Steel, wasn't that founded by J.D. Rockefeller, wasn't it? U.S. Steel, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, so um, but I, we, we, the grandchildren, could never understand. My grandfather used to take us on tours of U.S. Steel, right, of the plant yeah. when we were kids. Everybody got a chance to do that. 
<laughs> and we could never understand uh, why everybody at U.S. Steel treated our grandfather like he was something special when he was a guy who brought home like dented bananas <laughs> socks with holes in them because they were, you know, less expensive. We could we couldn't put. And then, you know, at some point, it, everybody gets, you know, brought into the story circle and we, we get things explained to us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Um, so that was that's my. But you're always like, oh, you're just like, uh, okay, my Christmas yeah. list this year is going to be a little bit more ambitious than what I was originally. I'm going to be an actor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. he didn't. My grand, my grandfather didn't like me very much. He hated my father because my father. You're a very likable guy. I'd love to be the kid version of you. You're just this no, kid. No, 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 had nothing to do with me. Thank you for seeing. <laughs> guys are likable too. <laughs> you find out that like eight year old Mark Sheffer is letting cars on fire and shit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. What happened was when when it, when my before my father and mother got married, my grandfather came to my father and offered him a job in one of his businesses. Right. Whether he worked in the car dealership or he had like five businesses, including the property stuff. Right. So uh, and my father turned him down. And my grandfather was this kind of guy that if you say no to him, that's like saying, you know, I just fucked your wife. You know, it's like uh, it's it's like the worst thing you could say. Right. So he was not used to hearing in any, you know, my father wouldn't budge because my father was a smart guy. He was a aluminum siding salesman. He spotted this shit. He knew what kind of a life that would be because he saw my uncle who, you know, was a very sweet man. But, you know, uh, uh, anatomically uh, deficient in the testicular area. Uh, <laughs> Lacking them balls. <laughs> and, and and my father said, yeah, that ain't happening to me. You know, yeah. uh, so my grandfather fucking hated him and he hated me as an extension of my father. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I hate he died, when he died, he left all the grandchildren money in his will. Except. Right? He, he left me a dollar. Because he wanted me to know how much he fucking hated me. Jesus Christ. Wow. Because that's actually so much worse than nothing. Yeah. You know oh, what yeah, I mean? No, well, it's it just, oh, no, it I is. didn't forget you. I didn't forget you. Yeah. Oh, I remembered yeah. you. Yeah. Luckily, luckily, uh, uh, I was kind of inured to it because it was it didn't come as a surprise. In fact, I was surprised it was that much. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that so, like made you stronger though? Like because it gave you probably a better work ethic because you weren't I didn't, I didn't give a shit to tell you the truth. <laughs> I, yeah, I was, strike me as a man with a very positive outlook. No, I was in college at Louisiana State University. I was uh, 18 and I was banging co-eds left and right. And you know, um Three years yeah. off your oh big break God. of show I've never, I've never seen a Jewish penis before. <laughs> oh my God. Where, where's that little stuff on the outside? Where is that? You, what? They cut it off? Does it hurt? You know? oh, my God. oh my God. It is kind of nice looking though. I could put my own hat on it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh my God! I just had oh a picture. Yeah, so different. Even your penises are different. <laughs> oh yeah, so you're so was... Jewish. You cheaped out on foreskin. <laughs> hey, it used to be five skin. We lowered it. <laughs> so so anyway, um, yeah, I I really didn't care. Uh, I've I've never. Uh, 
I've never had a victim mentality about anything that's that's ever happened in my life to me, including getting hit by a car. Like I got hit by a car, you know, and I, I looked at the report that the cop cops, you know, wrote afterwards and it said victims report. And I literally want to wanted to erase that and say person who got hits report. Because you know? <laughs> I, I just don't. I'm too much of the captain of my own ship. It doesn't mean I don't hit a ill wind or bad weather. Yeah. But I'm the captain of my ship, and you can't be a victim and be the captain of the ship. You yeah. know what? Control curse? the controllables, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Control the controllables. It's a boxer expression, really, because there are just things you're not. But um, the thing is, what you got out of that all of these years later is a story. Uh, everybody else, it's it's just worth something to you. It's a great great story and if yeah. it's there's other people like your siblings your cousins whatever you have um and they have like oh yeah uh, back like in 1960 70 whatever um yeah my granddad died and i got money in the will that's not a fucking story no. that's that's not a story it's not anything i don't even know why you brought it up <laughs> you know you're just you're just telling me something to happen but what you have is a story man and i bet you you've dined out on it you've laughed about it you're what you and your wife have laughed about, you know what i mean it, 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 it's i've it, never it yeah, i've I've, li- I've had to kind of again i i say this with with uh um the the underlying expression of humility um in in the fact that, that it's happened but i have had the kind of life where I've written about aspects of my life and made money from that. <laughs> and, yeah. and I tell jokes about aspects of my life and I make money from that. And it's, it, and it keeps happening. This is, this is my karma, right? This is who I am. This, yeah. this shit just, you know, like I go to the comedy store the other night to that party. Now you saw how I was dressed, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. So I, I made a conscious decision to go dress nicely. Yeah. You did. That's Even your awesome. face wow. mask was looking good. The nice purple one. Yeah. So you you saw that I had the mask on, right? Yeah. So, yeah. But I, I had three masks on. I had a medical grade N95 on first. Then I had two KN95s on top of that. Because while I wanted to make an appearance at the comedy store, yeah. I didn't I didn't want to expose myself. Right? I didn't want to. So I did the best I could, right? Yeah. So um, I'm there. And I told you earlier that I got hit on by two women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what I looked like wearing a mask. Couldn't be seen. First person, first woman to hit on me was, uh, well, there was a girl who was working there. And I say girl, cause I'm 72 and she was probably like 23. Uh, <laughs> so and I don't know this one. I'm not sure if she was hitting on me cause I, but I think that she, it was a pre-hit for sure. <laughs> Preemptive strike. Kind of a subject to hit, but it was a pre-hit. Yeah. So, so I, I'm talking to her. She comes up to me. She says, would you like whatever's on the tray? I said, nah, no, thank you. And uh, I move around and she comes up to me again. Something different. How about some of this? I said, nah, not doing that. And so this happens like three or four times, right? So she comes up to me with one other item and I said, I passed and she's, aren't you hungry? <laughs> and I said, I'm starving. And she says, well, why don't you have something to eat? And I said, you know what? Uh, uh, I got masks on <laughs> and I'm not taking my masks off because yeah. well, as attractive as this food is, it's <laughs> worth dying for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just got like I'm a fun 
So then here's what, here's what the, where, where the language that, that uh, took me to the pre-hit situation is. And she said, well, how about if I pack up a doggy bag for you and you can take it home? <laughs> That's actually quite a nice thing to That's do. Was very, it was way too nice. <laughs> so i said well that's really really nice but i'm not big on like food that's been in the public you know i don't yeah i don't, yeah. I don't take off of buffets and stuff I, I don't do that and she started laughing she said she laughed at that and she said are you a comedian here i said i have been and i said i started there and she said well this is my first time here uh well okay you know, uh, if you if you want that uh, uh, food, let me know. And she walked away and she kept turning around and looking and smiling at me. So <laughs> I have enough experience to say to myself, like nothing ever was going to happen. right? because I love my wife and this girl was young enough to be my granddaughter. But, yeah. but uh, uh, it did make me tickle. But here's the one that I really enjoyed. I was out in the parking lot and uh, standing talking to my friend Steve Middleman and a couple of other comedians. Steve is a tall guy. He's like 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. He's huge. I don't know how, how he's Jewish in that big weave. Never... <laughs> he's a golem. <laughs> yeah. 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 Except Steve's too, way too sweet to be a golem. Anyway, so I, I look a certain way and I see this very attractive African-American woman, kind of longish hair, uh, dressed really nicely. You know, I'm going to say early, early to mid-20s. And she's staring at me, right? And eventually she says, well, hello. And I said, well, hello to you. <laughs> and she said, I've been noticing you. <laughs> oh. I've been noticing you notice me. <laughs> <laughs> and she's I like, and I noticed you notice me. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. 30 minutes. <laughs> she walks at this point. She leaves the person she was talking to and walks over to me. This is what she says to me. She said, yeah, I've been looking at you, man. She said, I've been looking at your shoes. I seen your socks. I looked at your pants, your suit pants. I looked at your shirt. I see that little pocket hanky in there and that hat you're wearing. And you're pretty styling. If I like what I see under that mask, we might have a connection tonight. <laughs> That's like the new chat offline, isn't it? <laughs> right. Now, Middleman, my friend Middleman, it's a good it's a good thing Middleman is as tall as he is because that way she didn't get a chance to see his reaction, right? He's, like, <laughs> he's looking at me like this because, you know, he was my wife and he didn't see. So I, you know, and I said, well, I appreciate it. I said, trust me, I'm completely flattered and I will, I will go home uh, with a smile on my face. But for what you have in mind, I don't think my wife... <laughs> gonna like be in favor of it. <laughs> and Colombian song us around she put her hands on her hips and she looked at me and she said oh you got a wife <laughs> and, uh, well it could have been something I said it always will be in my mind <laughs> that does a bit of a pep in your step though doesn't it no it's like I'm yeah, yeah, flattery yeah Yes, it, I, I, you know, the first person I told my wife, I called her. I said, "You're not going to believe what happened." I'm such an idiot. I'm, such, I'm literally such an idiot. I called her. 
you're not going to believe what happened. <laughs> that's when you know you're kind of done with the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because yeah, there's no chance, right? I call my wife and I tell her. <laughs> what, what, was the, what was the vibe like, uh, like the 50th anniversary of the comedy uh, uh, store? Like, what was, what was it like down there? Well, there were, it was divided up into uh, uh, people who actually had an emotional connection to what was going on. And those people who were just there because they were part of the comedy store uh, from a certain point forward. So my, my, my comedian friends of my generation, we, we draw the dividing line yeah. between uh, those people who were made regulars at the store by Mitzi herself yeah. and, the, you know, and those oh, people who were made afterwards by other people. Yep. And we're that's, you know, and I mean, I'm even in a subset of that. I'm in the actual originals group because I was there before the strike and there after the strike. That's so Mitzi Shore. That's, is that Polly Shore's mother? Isn't it? Polly Shore's mother. Yeah. yeah. I saw Polly and his brother, Peter and uh, Marsha Warfield was there. My friend Marsha was there. Uh, Paul Provenza was there. I'm trying to remember. Oh, uh, Leslie Smith from Saturday Night Live was there. Leslie Jones, rather, from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, she's uh, funny. Uh, is she the, I know, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for you to do that. Right. We all saw Ghostbusters. <laughs> she just, she, she, if, I, if she wasn't, if I didn't know who she was, I wouldn't know who she was. Like, she was just normal, quiet, yeah. normal. Yeah. yeah. Most people, most, most people, you know, I mean, every now and then there's the Andy Dick of show business, right? You know, like that person. Always on. Always that, on, yeah. Yeah. Well, Robin was always on, but he was, Robin wasn't an asshole. You know, he, he didn't do anything that, 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 Robin was all about the real joke. Yeah. Right. And, and performing. I don't And Robin it. could be the joke. You Robin, know what I mean? Like he wasn't above being the joke. No, not I at all. I always loved that about him. No, he was he was uh, self-deprecating when necessary. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then and then he could have a go at you because you know that it's it's an even setting. It's not it's not punching yeah. down, it's not no, punching, he used up. To, it's punching he across. Used, he used to pull that shy puppy thing really well. <laughs> I hear he was the first person to make Reeves laugh after his accident paralyzed. They knew each other from Juilliard, as I understand. So that's entirely possible. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't that that sounds yeah, like a beautiful soul, a beautiful soul, someone I was a huge fan of. And uh, yeah, I went to see Night at the Museum and I went out to the cinema and going, yeah, the only thing I took away from that was how absolutely devastated I am that I'm never going to see Robin Williams in a film again. I was because yeah. he was dead a couple of yeah. months at this stage and I was just devastated. He was uh, he was a good guy, you know. Uh, That's good to hear. It's great to hear it about. Um, did you did you tour much with him when you were doing stand up, Mark, or did I, you just know him as a personal kind of thing or? We no, we were we we did uh, kind of a combination of both actually. Yeah. Um, Relationships we, again, isn't it? We did we, when you were doing what I was doing, you know, from 1976 through 1982 in LA uh, when I was working the clubs uh, before writing took over and I had to make a choice. If you were working out in a club five nights a week, there weren't 400 comedians. 500 comedians like there are today there were a lot but there were and and you, you you'd work especially the comedy store in the improv if you're working if you're there in those places 
you're going to work with everybody at least once or twice in the course of a month. Yeah. You know, so it was actually a rite of passage to be on a show with Robin and, and go on after him. <laughs> Don't have him. It's great. Right. Yeah. Uh, and this is before Robin was Robin. This is just when he was Robin from San Francisco. Um, uh, he, without meaning to, uh, uh, with, with nefarious intent, they just sucked the oxygen right out of her room. <laughs> would you prefer to go on after a killer or do you prefer to, would you prefer to go on before what was, or does it amp you up? Does it make you feel better in the moment or want to be better? Oh, I'd much rather go on before. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not an idiot. Because, no, because it's, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that it's insurmountable, right? Because mm-hmm. an act later, everything's kind of back to normal again. It's yeah. that position right afterwards. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because they're, it's when they're still in the air and yeah, you know, it's, walking it's, into it. Yeah. And I'm telling you that Robin could be so fucking good at times that people would leave because they have no more laughter left in them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh he gasped. He actually gasped. Yeah. Have, like nothing. You know, they they're just sucked dry, they're like completely dry. And he was, you know, that's, you know, that's the Robin that I remember. Did you ever get the right firm um, at all, or you know, I, no, not 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 jokes, bonds. I just had a residual a while back. <laughs> what, what's that like? Do you ever get residuals to stuff you don't remember wait, doing? Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> look, I'll show you this. Look, you see that? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> see that? What are we looking at? <laughs> okay, oh. so so I got this in the mail. Um, this is this is a copy of it. I uh, that I'm, I'm gonna have framed. I got this in the mail. Uh, I don't know, six months ago, eight months ago, uh, and I couldn't figure out what it was for until I realized. I guessed at it, and I ran my guess by some friends, executive friends of mine. We had Robin on a year that I one of the years that I was working on the People's Choice Awards, and I wrote some stuff for him for that show. And it makes me kind of wonder if on one of these, on the video that this represents, or this is for, if they didn't lift uh, something from him on that show. And if they do that, they would have to pay me. And, and since I know how contracts are written, it wouldn't be the People's Choice Awards who would have to pay me. It would be whoever buys the lift. Yeah. And because they assume all, all guild responsibilities uh for their purchase so that's what i think it is you know but no i i had a very friendly relationship with him uh uh, through the years not best friends you know but somebody who just by nature of was in the same space at the same a close space at the same time for a long period of time uh uh developed uh you know like a very friendly it's kind of like the nature of the beast kind of thing, was it? it was like yeah, a, a friendly acquaintanceship, you know. And and we were in a video together early on when I when I first got to the store, um, and and we performed in the same thing and kind of established myself with him then quickly, you know. Yeah. So uh, not that it was necessary. Robin was nice to everybody. Yeah, he just was a nice guy. That's that's the thing. He was like, really like a joy magnet. He just was a sweet man. 
how how do you think like from back then when you were like uh, doing stand up with Robin Williams and all the legends of comedy that like how do you think comedy has evolved and changed through all mm. the time you spent in that circle like like for the betterment or for the worse and what do you think was the golden age of comedy in your opinion? Well, I think it was the golden age in comedy for this reason that on any given night during that period you could walk into the comedy store on any given night, right? And for the price of two drinks, see Robin Williams, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Richard Lewis, uh, uh, Richard Pryor, uh, Jimmy Walker, Gabe Kaplan. Uh, uh, you, you, you could, these were the people who were there regularly, mm. like every week, whether they were working or not working, doing TV shows, not doing TV shows. It was, so there was, it was, I'm going to try to not be specific because I don't, I don't think I have a right to be specific because I yeah. you be like trying to say, well, which is a better fruit, an apple or an orange? Yeah, you know? it's very era dependent as well. Listen yeah, it's an apples and orange discussion. But, but I will say that my observation and my conclusions based on my observation is that I don't think that talent bench is as deep today as it was with us. Yeah, that's fair. And I could be wrong. Okay, but I've seen some people who I really like John Mulaney. You know who John Mulaney is? Yeah. yeah, I love him. I've seen him at the comedy store a couple of times. He's fucking great in the club. He's a terrific, terrific comedian. He's just uh, Sebastian Maniscalco yeah. is a superb comedian it's, and, and hysterical, you know, um, but I can count the number of people on one hand who I've yeah. seen, you know, who calls themselves a comedian. I mean, that's another thing, you know, I, I guess, I don't know. I'm, I'm not like grumpy about it because I had a nice life and I still do. And I have nothing to complain about, but I think a lot of people are calling themselves comedians today uh, with the same foundation as someone calling themselves a doctor who, you know, maybe read a medical book. Yeah, it's like yeah, I get you. It's like it's the, the, the I, just, I just don't yeah, because I, I watch people on stage, and what I see is you know if you're really funny, you have an inherent sense of what a punchline is, right? Like I when I I'll give you an example. As I'm talking to you guys, part of me is talking to you. The other part of me is writing punchlines for ten seconds from now. Yeah, yeah. 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 Listening to parts of our conversation and crafting a punchline that I've never said before, but I know is going to work in this situation yeah. because I have an instinct for that, right? So, so what I see a lot is a lot of people who might have been funny at a party, who might have told a joke or two, uh, who uh, um, in in the kind of world we live in are not, you know, they they rise above the level of being considered assholes. So <laughs> make them, you know, stage worthy, I guess. Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to judge. I just, you know, I go by the laughter. Funny is funny, whether it's, you know, now, 20 years from now, 20 years earlier, it was funny. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I, I think any one of us where we around today with the same skill set and instincts would, you know, and I'll tell you what, none of these comedians today, I will, I will be very specific about something. I look at a lot of them, you know, not the, not the Dave Chappelle's or the, you know, the famous guys but I look at a lot of people and I say to myself, they could never follow Robin. 
they would just never, never do it. Never, yeah. just couldn't do it. Just had never. They, they've never even seen anything. They first. That's right. They've never even seen anything like. Yeah, it, it's of, like of what you could do to an audience. Do you think it's the lack of a killer instinct or do you think it's just the general, as you said, it's like I'm calling myself a comedian. It's like saying that I'm calling myself a doctor because I read a read an article somewhere. Is that like that they just don't have the qualifications to back up, like to follow a killer, like a, a Robin Williams, a Dave Chappelle, a Joe Rogan or like these kind of massive names. Like Even if they didn't do a massive performance, just the name itself to follow that name, you know, you you. In order to, to, you know, what I, the way I kind of uh, metaphor a sense of humor is to me, for me, speaking for me, is life comes into all of us, right? It, it, we, we wake up, we, the moment we start our day, we're, we're stimulated by life. All kinds of experiences, all kinds of information, all kinds of shit just comes at us, right? Mm. So normal people, it comes in, it's processed, they do what it is, right? And they move on. People, creative people, whether it's music, because they hear sounds and they're, you know, music occurs inside the head of, of an artist, not necessarily in nature, you know, in the mm. same form, right? It's the artist that grows it and makes it. Mm. So the way I see the world, the world comes at me. And instead of it taking a normal linear path, my brain is like a prism, right? It's got different facets to it. So information comes in and it, instead of going out, it bounces around. Filters. And, yeah, and, it, and when it comes out, it's a punch. I see a punch. I see punchlines. I write reflexively, right? I think yeah. of things and I instances and I write jokes reflexively. It just happens, just, you know. And can you create the situation that causes you to have the reflex or do you need outward stimuli? Both. I can do both. Yeah, both. Happens when it happens, but you always have to be open for yeah. it. It happens. Yeah. It happens when it happens unless you have children to feed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you have to yeah. make it happen. Then you yeah. gotta make it happen. And it was my television writing experience when you have to like, you know, when when you're sitting in your office and uh, uh, knock on your office door and a network person pokes their head in and says, Hey, we're doing uh, 10 and 20 second promos uh, later this afternoon. I'll need uh, five uh, uh, clever 10 second ones and five clever 20 second ones. <laughs> it's like, um, oh, oh boy, okay. Uh, we had yeah. a, a stand up comedian, Brandon Takai, on a while back, and Noel was like, It's like, how hard is it to be funny on demand? It's like, be funny now, Brandon, is what Noel was saying. It's like, how hard is it to be funny on demand, Mark? Is it really hard? Like, yeah. I'm never funny on demand, I'm just funny. That's actually a good answer. You know, it is just, it's like just get up and say, yeah. Funny. No, every, yeah, you don't seem to understand. Every, everyone who knows me, right? Every, every person in my life will tell you, if you were, if you were to ask them a question about me, you know, mm. you, you would, if you were to say to people who know me, how does how, you spend a lot of time around Mark? How does he like turn his comedy off and turn it off? They would say to you, it's just who he is. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just who he is. And just like when you're writing, is that what you do? You just when you're thinking of situations, what would Mark do, or can you inhabit the character and say what I would Charles do? The, I can inhabit the characters, but I inhabit them with with the same freedom that I have. Yeah, which, which allows me to kind of connect with it, you know, on a certain level. Which probably works really well when you're writing a book that's a fictionalized version of seven years in your life. That not only do you have your actual point of view, but you already have the experience of crafting the character's point of view around yeah. your own point of view, which you've done during your writing career, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you know, 
you live and you learn, man. It's just, uh, I was an accidental writer. So, uh, you know, I was, I told, did I tell you guys that story? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. yeah that's, it's it, it's girl. having to do with girls. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm always like playing catch up with myself. Right. <laughs> the situation to find yourself in and then have to. Well, most, most yeah. writers my age would already have written many books. You know, here I am struggling through my first. So, so uh, <laughs> clearly I'm always in a learning curve. Uh, right. We all, yeah, that's it. What Here, you, we, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, what do you find uh, in the differences between writing a novel and compared to script writing? Well, I'm so used to writing scripts that I, I have a uh, very defined procedure, right, that takes me from uh, point A to point Z. Yeah. I, just have to go, I just have to go through the steps, right? Yeah. But with this, uh, I've never done it before, so I don't really know the steps. I just, relying on steps taken for other projects and understanding what narrative is. And, but it's like, here I write like one page and I look at it and it leads me to writing five more pages. It's like, that's the, like, you, you get the opportunity to mine it so deeply yeah. right, that, you know, I'm, I may have too much. I don't know the way it's going right now. Like I'm on the first year, which is 1957 it'll be a hundred pages space and a half. So that's like 70 pages of regular space. <laughs> and that's, 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 that's not even any of the meat. That's just set and yeah. shut you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it, I tell you, you've gone for the hard sell on the book with me because I would love even just the story about your mother and everything. I think I could just live in that. <laughs> I think, I really <laughs> you know, it's, Again, I don't have my first one finished, so so I'm always thinking of the future. So I realized at some point, because I have tons of notes, right? I have tons of notebooks filled with notes. So I realized uh, <clears throat> at one point, you know, that I got to figure out how to end this uh, book. Mm. And then I still have so much stuff left over that happened after the end of this book. So I started, as I'm writing this book, making notes on a follow-up book to this that I don't even have written. <laughs> but I have a title. That, that, that title was called The Myth. <laughs> and, and it's because I have some writer friends who refer to me as The Myth because of how I got to L.A. <laughs> so, so. Well, the fake until you make it, man. You can't knock it. You cannot yeah, knock no. it. <clears throat> Listen, rule number one here. You are who you say you are until someone else proves you different. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. Why we smoke an uncle was always say back in London in the 70s, you're not caught till you're caught. You're, <laughs> the, you're not, just not caught until you're, you're in handcuffs, you're caught. You know what I mean? That, that was his that was his whole thing. Yeah. Do, you, do you think it's a case of that, like uh, because you're such a like as you said, you're kind of more relaxed and free with your thinking that you were able to adapt and evolve into different situations, even though you felt that you might not have been prepared on the outset for those I situations? Had, I had a choice. <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have I have a lifestyle, man. I have not given up my lifestyle. <laughs> I have I have goals. No, so I have a choice. It's I don't I don't. It was not. I was either learn it, yeah, or or not keep with the plan, right? <laughs> it's like uh, work often so you can party hard. Yeah, it? yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's hundred percent. I lived years of my life uh, doing doing that. You know, uh, um, yeah. I put several. Uh, ladies uh, in in vegas through college i believe <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the venmo, no. <laughs> venmo 
you got to um, imagine, you got to imagine like you're 28, 29 years old. You have a shit of disposable income, right? Because yeah. you're single, you're living a single life, very few responsibilities, you know, and there, you know, some other guys who are like this. It's nothing to was be nothing in those days to like get 10, 15,000 bucks in cash and then fly off to Vegas for four or five days, lock yourself in a room and just party, you know, just. And have you have you been living in California the entire time? Have you since have, yeah since uh seventy six? How's it how's it changed over the last forty or fifty years? A lot more people, right? <laughs> um, a lot of uh, you know climate's different, less rain. Uh, but I love California. It's been very good to me. You know, yeah. it, it reached out and like my father said to me, uh, if you're supposed to go to L.A then it'll reach out and pull you there. And he turned out to be right. Yeah. That's just the nature of the, uh, Los Angeles, though, is the gravitational pull, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, there are two kinds of people here. There are people who come here and, and seeking a career, uh, and they, they basically begin from a dead stop. Mm. And more often than not, it doesn't work. That's just not me. That's just the numbers, right? So, and, and then there are other kinds of people who, come here on some other kind of motion so they're always so that so that when they land in la and they come to live here they've got uh, uh traction and forward motion right they're not they're not stopped they're already they're already in play and that's what happened to me when i came here the day i landed uh i had uh, a car an apartment an office i had just sold the first script i ever wrote and i had the william morris as an agent so i was in motion yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm the myth. That's why <laughs> the myth. Okay. Yeah. myth before we yeah, got we've, heard of, we've heard of somebody like that, but yeah. So so my friend Joel Madison dubbed me the myth. And he said, You're the guy we've heard about all those years. So 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 Mark, but before we let you get out of here, I want to ask you one thing. And um, like you say you're you're planning all these different books and you got stacks of notes. Are you, are you going to get stuck into writing novels now and you feel that's the way your future is going to be over no, the next couple I don't of years? Know. I'm just gonna write these two and see what happens. Like I I do have an idea for another one, but I I shelved it in, in lieu of these. And um are both of them set around the seven years or um, split in half, three and half or or did two separate oh. stories. No, the two, one is the first, one is seven years. And then the myth is a seven year period following immediately. It follows immediately. Uh, so you're doing like kind of like a step-by-step -step biography is it kind of. That's it. It's a fictionalized biography. Uh, that's awesome. Um, do you want to tell the folks? Yeah, that, tell um, the folks where they can find you. Uh, Facebook, Mark Scheffler. Um, Instagram, Mark Scheffler. Twitter, uh, M5Mark. And in Indio, California, with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark, before I let you out of here, I just want to say uh, thanks so much for the, the photos you sent us. And yes, oh, of course. Uh, thanks oh, yeah. for coming. I would have had one up today, but the, the frame I got is the wrong size. So All I'm right. an idiot. <laughs> I didn't measure it. I don't think forward enough. <laughs> um, but uh, thanks so much for coming. I'm your host. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. God, thanks for saying that because. Well, that's something you're going to be held to. I'm your yeah. host, old John Tui. Oh, absolutely. Uh, sure. No worries. All right, uh, guys. Thanks so much. Uh, we're going to have you back. And this MDK presents Mark Scheffler once more. Thanks so much, Mark. See you next time, folks. See you, Mark. Bye-bye, everyone. Oh, I love that. Right. Thanks so much.